Now picture the scene. You're driving along Interstate 78 in Pennsylvania, and you find yourself intrigued by billboards advertising Roadside America, the world's greatest indoor miniature village. So, of course, you pull off the road, and that's exactly what happened to Samantha Boardman. Years ago, I was a traveling, performing singer-songwriter, and I did a lot of work in the Mid-Atlantic. And so I was on my way to a gig and had some time to kill before soundcheck, and I kept seeing these billboards on I-78 for Roadside America. All the billboards said, be prepared to see more than you expect. And I was like, okay, I've got some time to kill. Show me more than I expect. And so I pulled off to this outwardly unassuming roadside attraction with no preconceived notions. I had not heard of this place before. And I walked in, bought my ticket, and walked into the the room where the the model is and was just stunned. Uh, it was huge. It was just stirring. It was genuinely emotionally stirring. Roadside America had been built by Lawrence T. Gearinger. And it had been delighting motorists since the early 1950s with its unifying, tiny vision of the U.S. It fascinated Samantha so much that, unlike most visitors, she decided to write a Ph.D. dissertation about it. What interested me so much is that it was an attraction that declared itself to be a portrayal of America. And I thought that was really interesting and really bold and not necessarily something that you would get in like a modern tourist attraction. Right. Um, because you have this, you know, very diverse, polyglot, multi-ethnic, multiracial country. And to stake a claim and say, like, <laughs> this is a representation of America is, is you know, you're, you're uh, playing with fire. Is it fair to say that claiming to have an exhibit that portrays all of America would not have seen bold or ridiculous in the early 1950s? Okay, well, this is what's so interesting about this particular cultural moment um, when Roadside America, which had existed in various permutations since the, the 30s, it started out as being kind of like a one of those little scenes that you would put underneath a Christmas tree. Lawrence Gearinger, the, the guy that started it, started with an under-tree display that grew so large it became a local attraction. And people would come to his house just to see this model that ended up taking over his living room. And then it was displayed in different places uh, through the 30s and 40s. And then it eventually arrived at where it is today in 1953. So in 1953, you have this confluence You've got a couple of things going on. So it's post-World War II. You've got the highway construction with the Interstate Highway Act of 1956. And you also have an American heritage tourism boom where Americans were encouraged to see America first. So rather than go to Europe and spend your tourism dollars there, to take in the local and domestic wonders. So there's this cultural moment when American heritage tourism sites are very desirable and you also have, like, the, the sort of nuts and bolts. You're able to get to them. You're able to get to them, which ironically is going to flatten most of them, right? Those very interstate highways that allow you to, to get to these places more quickly, more conveniently, are going to root and not. I mean, you know, you can predict what you're going to see when you get off at an exchange on any of these interstate highways today. Yes. So there, you have this one sort of singular cultural moment where you have um, these very different kinds of roadside attractions. Right. It's not all homogenized yet. You start to see some of the ways that communications enable ideas to circulate more quickly. So at the same moment that you have Roadside America in Charlottesville in 1953, a competitor miniature American tourist attraction opens up 
just 50 miles down the road in Denver, Pennsylvania, called America Wonderland. And it was built by a gentleman named Adam S. Hahn. And he's got a story similar to Gearinger's. He was also a model maker. He had had like a local attraction called... um, mountainside wonderland, something like that, before that he had exhibited. But he creates this competitor, miniature American tourist attraction less than an hour away. And something that I think is so interesting about this moment is that that was in operation until 1973. So for 20 years, you have a market that can support two different miniature American tourist attractions in that kind of proximity to each other. Well, how were they different? They were quite different. They gave completely different views on Americanness and the American experience in some really interesting ways. Structurally, Roadside America, you walk in and it's the model itself fills an entire room. It's massive. And the way it's designed, you walk around the model and you see these different scenes portrayed in miniature. So you have a modern American suburb, modern, of course, circa 1963. You've got um, kids playing ball in a baseball field. You have a circus uh, practicing. And then you have these vignettes from American history. So you've got a frontier town. You've got like an old west town. There's a model anthracite mine um, because he extrapolated a lot of Americanness from sites that were close to him. Uh-huh. So like sure. the town of Hamburg, Pennsylvania sort of fills in for the the downtown section, which is still like a small town in America. Have the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania or did that not make it? Yeah, it's there. Great. Yeah, the, uh, the Titusville well, that's there. Great. So you've got, you know, this kind of, you know, these scenes of local pride, but taken from that, it's this idea that it stands in for a common American experience. Mm-hmm. So you have the historical and the modern existing cheek by jowl on this model as you're walking around, which creates this sort of like American cosmology that America is something that exists in an eternal now. And you also have this interactivity with it. So people that were walking around could press buttons that activated things in the model. So you press a button and uh, two men are sawing a log. And then you press another button and a trolley zips down a street. And the entire time the, the model is like alive with kinetic activities. So there's model trains that are zipping through it, and there's a waterfall, and there's running water that goes through it. Um, And then every 20 minutes, there's the night pageant, which is when the lights in the room where the model is dim, and the lights inside the model come on, and the uh, Star Spangled Banner is played over a PA, along with Kate Smith singing God Bless America, while um, slides... Uh, images of Jesus are projected on the back wall next to a fluttering American flag. If you had to pick a year that you would identify with each, what year does roadside America really capture? And what year does America Wonderland really capture? Well, Roadside America was installed at its present location in 1953, and it was largely complete. There wasn't a lot that was added after that. And Gearinger dies in 1963. But I think, like, what you get when you go to Roadside America is, like, a, a very specific vision of a specific American moment mm-hmm. rather than a year. And because Gearinger passes in 1963, like, this is a moment that comes, it's in his world, in this vision, there is no Kennedy assassination, there's no moon landing, there's no Vietnam, there's no women's movement, there's no 9-11. So you do get a very unambiguously 
patriotic and affectionate vision of of a shared American experience. And then when, you know, American Wonderland opens in 1957, so that's, you know, the year of Sputnik and Little Rock, there's already a great deal of anxiety in American culture, a great deal of Cold War anxiety. Now, of course, if you were African-American, you had good reason to be anxious, even in the early 1950s. Is any of that reflected in Roadside America? Well, I think something that's interesting about Roadside America is that you do find, to a degree, like a suggestions of people. Hmm. Like you would see, uh, they don't, they're not like fully formed representations. Like they're not detailed enough to see like expressions. Mm-hmm. So there's like, you know, a little kid who drops her ice cream cone and there's a kitten looking at it. So there, you have these vignettes, but you don't really see the personality. Tell us how someone visiting Roadside America in the 1990s, you perhaps, what is your lasting image a couple of days after actually going to Roadside America? I think I was and continue to be surprised at how emotionally resonant I found the experience, especially the night pageant. I was legitimately and unironically moved by this, you know, the care and the time that this man had put into his singular vision and the great deal of affection that he felt for his country and the way that he was able to convey that so well. That's what stuck with me. Dolores Heinzen is the granddaughter of Roadside America's founding father, Lawrence T. Geringer. I put a call into her and found her, of course, in the gift shop. He started in ni- 1903. And this is an honest-to-goodness true story, and I because I even have it on old 78 records told by my great-grandmother. And she, they were underfoot in the kitchen, and she shooed him out of the kitchen to get out and play, and they climbed up on the side of the mountain overlooking Redding near the pagoda, and the two young boys hatched this idea to build buildings, miniatures, small buildings. How old were they at the time? My grandfather was nine. His brother probably was a little younger than nine. He Uh could have been about eight. He went home all excited. They went home, and they told their their parents, that was my great-grandparents, and my, they, they encouraged, and I emphasize the word encouraged, <laughs> them to, to do this. And my great-grandfather built him a workbench in the basement, taught him the proper use of tools. And my great-grandmother, when it was cold, she would let him do their work on the kitchen table. And he started buildings. Now, as real young boys, they didn't get the scale so good. So the buildings were quite crude in the very beginning, but the idea was still there. Mm-hmm. And eventually, uh, my grandfather decided to stick with one scale, which is three-eighths of an inch to the foot. And then he stuck with that the rest of his life. All the buildings are three-eighths of an inch to the foot. He sounds like a very exact kind of man. I always say, pay attention to the detail. And he, to him, good enough wasn't good enough. It had to be right. Was he a patriotic man? Yes, He was a very religious man. He was a very patriotic man. He loved his country and he loved children. I always said, as as years went by, decades later, after he died, the best way to describe him was a common genius. You know, no saying better embodies a part of America than new and improved. 
Mm-hmm. When your grandfather died in 1963, mm-hmm. surely there must have been discussion of new and improved, adding, no. changing, modernizing, no. expanding. No. no, because it's it's all my grandfather's work. And I always tell people, say, why don't you put the World Trade Center in? Why don't you do this? He died in 1963. That's that's pretty much the area there and prior where he lived and knew. And if you add something, I always tell people, it's like you have a painting like a Picasso and it's half finished. And some, Monet comes along or somebody and finishes the picture. Whose picture is it? What is it? It's nothing. And that's how I look at it. This, is, to me, is a tribute. Dolores Heinzen. And I know you want to hear Roadside America's night pageant again. So here's some more. 